Well, if you have your Bibles again this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the New Testament book of Titus, Titus chapter 1. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1271. If you're a guest with us, we've been working through the book of Titus. We just started a new sermon series in this book a few weeks ago. And we're in the section on the qualifications for leaders in the church. And we'll begin reading in verse 5 this morning. And I want to speak for a few minutes on this subject, leaders worth following. Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. And this is what the Word of God says. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. God believes leadership in the local church is so important that he addresses the, deep, the issue in detail four times in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 20, verses 28 to 38. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. In Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Each passage emphasizes the leader's personal character and theological competency because God is more concerned about who a leader is than what a leader can accomplish. The importance of the leader's character is further highlighted by the writer of Hebrews and his instruction to Christian congregations. He writes this in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And so if a church is charged to imitate the faith of its leaders, then the character and the faith of those leaders must be worthy of imitation. The Puritan Richard Baxter understood the importance of character in a leader, and he warned the pastors of his day of the importance of exercising oversight of their lives while they exercise oversight of the lives of those in their congregation. And he writes these words. See that the work of saving grace be thoroughly wrought in your own souls, Take heed to yourselves, lest you be void of that saving grace of God which you offer to others, and be strangers to the effectual working of that gospel which you preach. And lest, 
while you proclaim to the world the necessity of a Savior, your own heart should neglect him, and you should miss an interest in him and his saving benefits. Take heed to yourselves, lest you perish, while you call upon others to take heed of perishing, and lest you famish yourselves while you prepare food for them. Listen to what he says next. Many a tailor goes in rags that maketh costly clothes for others. And many a cook scarcely licks his fingers when he hath dressed for others the most costly dishes. It is a fearful thing to be an unsanctified professor, but much more to be an unsanctified preacher. Doth it not make you tremble when you open the Bible, lest you should read the sentence of your own condemnation? When you pen your sermons, little do you think that you are drawing up indictments against your own souls. This is what he wrote to fellow preachers of his day. Warning of the danger of exercising oversight over the whole congregation and failing to exercise oversight of your own soul. This is why... This passage on a character's leader is so important. This passage shows us what a congregation should look for in a leader. And it shows us what we should aspire to as leaders. Last week we looked in detail about the call for leaders worth following. And then we began examining the character of leaders worth following. And we began the family qualifications and we looked at just the first one, a leader's marriage. And now this morning I'm going to pick up and continue the family qualifications that are given to Titus and talk about, secondly, a leader's parenting. And this is what Paul says to Titus in verse number six. And his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, first of all, I want to clarify what Paul is not saying. Paul does not mean that an elder must have children. What he is saying is that if an elder does have children, he must meet this qualification. When he uses the word children, who is he describing? Well, the word in its very essence refers to offspring of any age. But the implication in this passage is upon dependent children who are still living under the roof and the authority of their parents. He's not really referring to those who are now adults and who, are, who have established their own home and who are living their own lives apart from their parents. Now notice, he uses plural language, meaning not the examination of just one child, but the character of the family as a whole, that the whole family unit is to be examined, both his marriage and his relationship to his children and to the rest of the family. Now, here's where this qualification gets tricky. Paul says, and his children are believers. 
What does he mean by the word believers? Well, this word has both a passive meaning and an active meaning. In its passive meaning, it refers to being trustworthy or faithful. And so it would read, and his children are trustworthy and faithful. In its active meaning, it literally means to believe, that the elders' children believe. Now, this is the difficulty in interpretation. Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary, said, Must a leader have, one, faithful, well-behaved, obedient children, or two, children who are believers? And he says that they are that, that they are the former, faithful and trustworthy, is without question. That they are the latter, believers, is the expectation. Brian Chapel disagrees. He says the emphasis of this word is faithful, that our assessment is to be based on observations of children's conduct and convictions made over time, not on isolated statements or actions. Here's how I'll tell you you can resolve the confusion. Look at the end of the verse. The end of verse 6 is the qualifier for the meaning of the word believers. And they're not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. That is the key to understanding what is meant by the word believer. When he uses the word debauchery, it literally means the inability to save. It is used metaphorically of wasting money on one's own pleasures and so ruining oneself. It literally refers to living as a prodigal, to rioting. It's commonly used to describe drunken revelry at pagan festivals. It is prodigal living. It is the rejection of the elder's faith. It's a rejection of the elder's leadership. It is giving oneself over to immoral pleasure and thus ruining oneself. And Paul says to Titus that elders' children should not be living chaotic, disorderly, wasteful, drama-filled, rebellious lives. They should not be in debauchery. And then he says... They should not be open to the charge of insubordination. It literally means personal unruliness. Paul isn't referring to occasional disobedience. He is referring to deep-seated rebellion rooted in the heart and soul and life of the child against parental authority. And these are the qualifiers. The elders' children must not be in debauchery and they must not be in subordination to the elders' leadership and authority in the home. Paul is not saying that elders must have perfect children. His point is that the children of elders are generally well-behaved. They are not known as little terrors running throughout the church. And when I was in the South, they used to have this phrase, the reason why the pastor's kids were so bad is because they hung out with the deacon's kids. 
Now, I want to pause here for a moment and say to you as a church that this has been a wonderful place to raise four children. You as a church family have made it easy in the sense of having a relationship with the church to raise our children. And you've made it a joy for my children to grow up in this church. And I'm excited this morning for all of the children in this room and downstairs in the nursery to be able to be raised and parented and grow up in a church like this. This is a good place. And I wish this morning that Miss June Holloman and Miss Ann Llewellyn and some of the other senior saints of this congregation who have graduated to heaven could be in this room in this moment seeing all of these children. It's a wonderful place to raise kids. That was just a side note. Now, back to the text. Here's the principle. And listen to this, please. Not just in the context of elders. Every single parent needs to listen to this principle that I'm about to give. Good leadership in the home is not determined solely by the absence of difficulty. It is determined in the prudent discipline and handling of problems when they arise in the home. To be a good leader in the home does not mean that your home is perfect and is void of problems. To be a good leader in the home means that you recognize the problems and then you deal with them with discipline and authority decisively. That is good leadership in the home. Now, I'm going to feel like a Puritan pastor to you this morning. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, if you've ever read the Puritan sermons, they just make application after application after application after application and observation after observation after observation. That's what's about to happen. And so first, I'm going to give you five observations. Now, my seminary professors would tell me, you have written this sermon so bad. You shouldn't do it this way. But this is what I got, folks, all right? I'm giving you my best. Observation number one. The meaning of this text is found with a comparison of 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. And here's what 1 Timothy 3, 4 and 5 says. He must manage his own household well with all dig dignity. Listen, listen to the text. Keeping his children submissive. Keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? I'm submitting to you this morning that the understanding of believers not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination lies directly in the idea of 1 Timothy 3 that an elder keeps his children submissive in the home. The word submissive is a military term. It means to line up under rank, under one's authority. And so Paul is saying that the elders of the church are to have children who line up in rank under their authority and their discipline and their leadership in the home. Here's the point. 
If an elder's own children cannot obey and respect him, how do you expect the church to obey and respect him and follow his leadership? For as Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the church of God? And so if an elder can't get his own home to be submissive to his leadership and his authority, he'll never be able to do that in the church. And here's the reality, friends. Whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, Church discipline is a key function of an elder biblically. And you cannot expect an elder to lead and exercise discipline in the church if he's not leading and exercising discipline in his home. If his home doesn't have discipline and leadership, the church will not have discipline and leadership. That's observation number one. Observation number two. While a godly home is conducive to belief, it does not guarantee or produce belief. If we insist that a child's salvation is connected to the leadership skills of the father, we have assigned an unbiblical role to human action. Because Jonah declared in Jonah chapter 2 and verse 9 that salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation does not belong to the elder. Salvation does not belong to the father in the home. The father should be leading his children to salvation, but salvation belongs to the Lord. It is his plan of salvation. It is his sovereign act of salvation. A father can never save his own children. Only the Lord can do that. Observation number three. Even the best pastoral leaders throughout her church history have had unbelievers within their church and under their sphere of influence. So are we saying that there is one standard for the home that children must be believers and another standard for the church? That there can be unbelievers in it. That would be inconsistent theologically, wouldn't it? Observation number four. What do we do with a man who has six children and only five of them are believers? Does the one unbelieving child call into question the overall leadership of that elder in his home? Something to think about. Observation number five. Requiring that an elder's children have genuine saving faith is to require personal responsibility for the salvation of another, which is contrary to Scripture, specifically the doctrine of election. For Jesus said in John chapter 6 and verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. You understand that, don't you, friends? That no one can come to Jesus Christ unless they are drawn to Christ. And that's what I pray, by the way, every Sunday morning before I come to this building. 
I pray that God, through the power of his spirit and in his glory, would honor the reading, the hearing, the preaching of his word in such a way that the word of God would be unleashed upon the congregation. It would pierce souls, pierce hearts, and it would convict people of their sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come, and that the spirit of God would use the word of God to draw people to himself. Because I am mindful that there will not be a single person in this room who will be saved and come to faith in Christ and experience their sins forgiven unless the Spirit of God draws them to the Father. And so if you are here without Christ today, my prayer is that you would see your need for Christ. That you would see that all of the searching for your heart, all of the chasing after things that continually leave you empty and without satisfaction, that your satisfaction and your fullness could be found in only one place, in a relationship with the God of the universe through His Son, Jesus Christ. And this God loved you so much that He was willing to send His Son to die for you and for your sins and for all of the wrongs that you've committed against a holy God so that you would no longer experience His wrath but His love and His acceptance and His forgiveness. I'm praying even now that you would hear this and receive it and be pierced by it and be drawn to Him for salvation. That in this moment you would call upon the name of the Lord who can save you. Because there is no salvation apart from God's work and Christ's sacrifice. And so I don't believe, friends, that this idea of believers is about salvation. Alexander Strzok, who is an expert on eldership, says, The contrast is made not between believing and unbelieving children, but between obedient, respectful children and lawless, uncontrolled children. What is at stake is the children's behavior. It's their behavior. Are they following the leadership of the home? Justin Taylor, who is the editor for Crossway Ministries, said, I believe, therefore, that 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 are referring to the general submission and behavior of the elders' children. God has so designed the universe that the parental role of disciplinarian, model, authority, and servant leader generally has a profound effect upon the behavior of the children. Paul does not spell out what this looks like in every case, nor does he spell out all of the specifics of what will disqualify an elder. The general case, however, is clear. What must not characterize the children of an elder is immorality and undisciplined rebelliousness if the children are still at home and under his authority. Now listen to what he says next. This applies to all of us. Paul is not asking any more of the elder and his children than is expected of every Christian father and their children. This isn't just for elders, friends. This is a principle for every father. For every mother, there is no more sacred, perilous, and rewarding task than that of raising children. It is a great responsibility. So I told you I was going to be a Puritan. Here's some principles now, not observations. Principle number one, elders will have a relationship with their children 
that will result in their children's embrace of the elder's relationship with God, not a rejection of it. That elders should be living their lives in their home with their children in such a way that their children would be prone to embrace the faith and the leadership and the authority of their father. General principle number two. As a godly leader and a godly dad, an elder will do whatever is necessary in terms of time and attention to nurture his children in the training and instruction of the Lord. That he will take time to train his children. He will take time to instruct his children. He will take time to discipline his children. That is leadership. And if an elder will train his children in the home and nurture them in the home and discipline them in the home, you can probably rest pretty confidently that he will train the church and instruct the church and discipline the church and lead the church. <laughs> As I was thinking about this idea of parenting and what our homes would look like, I came across this quote from John Wilmot, the Earl of Rochester. And this is what he said one time. Before I got married, I had six theories about bringing up children. Now I have six children and no theories. And that's right, right? You know, those that are married and don't have children yet and those who are single and hope one day to be married and have children and you're in the grocery store and you see kids giving their parents a fit, fit and you walk away and you say, my child will never act like that. My child will never do that. When I have kids, I'm going to do A, B, C, D. Yeah, right. <laughs> Come see me. We'll talk later. It's easy to have theories when you don't have children. Here's what I want you to understand today, church. Marriage and family give the most probing analysis of a man's character. Because a man who is a leader in the church, and you can trust me on this, I've lived before you for a long time, is the most vulnerable place to be in the world because you see it all there's no hiding and how a man displays his character in his marriage and how a man displays his character with his children in his home gives you great insight into the man himself for if he appears to lack competence if he appears to lack sensitivity if he appears to lack wisdom in his family, that should be a clear signal to the church that he won't be sensitive to the church, he won't have wisdom for the church, and he won't have competence in the church. And if he can't succeed in the microcosm of his own family, he'll never succeed in the macrocosm of the family of God. Here's what I'm saying to you, friends. An elder can't be one thing at home and another thing in the church. I pray that there is never a day in my life when I stand up before you to teach you the word of God that my wife and my kids are sitting there saying, who is that man? Because that is not the man that I live with Monday through Saturday. There should be no discrepancy it should be the same everywhere 
Charles Swindoll said, it doesn't matter if a man succeeds at everything else in life. If he's not leading his family well, he's disqualified from leading the church. Far too many men are up to their kneecaps in business, church work, and other endeavors, and often enjoying success in all these areas, but their homes are in disarray. And if you want to know how a man is going to lead the church, look at his home. Is it in disarray? Is it in disarray? John MacArthur said, an elder is responsible for leading people to God, for leading them to holiness, for leading them to obedience, and for leading them to witness crucial matters that must be tested in his own home. Resolving conflict, building unity, maintaining love, and serving each other are essentials to church life that are challenges in the home. If he succeeds in these things in his family, he is likely to succeed in these things in God's family. And did you hear it, friends? Resolving conflict, building unity, maintaining love, serving each other. These are the essentials to church life. And they're the challenges to church life. And a man's home cannot be full of disobedience, insubordination, chaos, and disarray. It can't be. So, how are we to apply these things? Well, I'm still a Puritan. Five applications. Number one, would you pray for the children of your leaders? Would you pray for them? Here's what I can guarantee you, church. You have no idea what goes on in a leader's life from Monday to Saturday before they come into this building on Sunday. You have no idea. And I'm not saying that to garner sympathy. I'm saying that to educate you. And I'm telling you that if you knew and understood, you would pray. Would you pray for their children? Would you pray specifically that their children would come to know Christ as their Savior? Because the leaders of your church pray that your children would come to know Christ as your, their Savior. Every single name that we pray in elders meeting, we pray for the children that belong to those names. And we pray for those children by name that they would come to know Christ as their Savior and that they would grow up to serve Christ and follow Him and be devoted to Him. We pray that God might call some of these kids out of the children's ministry to serve Him as preachers and missionaries. We pray that specific. And so would you pray that specific for the salvation and for the walk of the children of your leaders? And would you pray that these children would follow their parents? That they wouldn't be found in debauchery and insubordination and rebellion? Would you pray for them? Application number two. Are we as a church training men to be good leaders in the home? Does every man in this church know 
the importance and the priority of their leadership in their home? And are they determined to own it and to live it and to lead it? If you're in some form of church leadership, are you ensuring that your home ministry is godly and committed? Are you ensuring that your family is not getting the leftovers? That you're not coasting in your leadership and in your shepherding and in your care of your children and your wife? If you are aspiring to some form of church leadership, does an examination of your home life say that you're suited for it? Do you meet these qualifications? And listen to me, men. Listen to your pastor. Listen to his heart. Don't be discouraged by it and look at it and say, well, I'll never meet that. No, that's the wrong way to respond to it. Look at it and be challenged by it and be determined when you leave this place by God's grace that you're going to look different as a man, as a husband, and as a father. You're going to strive to lead your family like this. Accept the challenge. Man up. Application number three. Men, would you examine today how you're loving? Listen, how you're loving, how you're leading, and how you're nurturing your children. Would your daughters be surprised, men, if you came up to them and gave them a hug? Would they be surprised if you put your arm around them and showed them fatherly affection? Would they be surprised if you gave them a kiss on the cheek? Would they be surprised if you told them how proud you are of them and how beautiful they are? Would they be surprised to hear you say how concerned you are about the kind of man that would come and try to court them? That's nurturing. That's loving. That's leading. Men, are you passive in leading your home? Are you content to leave your wife to bear the burden? of raising the children by herself. Oh, you're present in the home, but you're absent. Do you know what your kids are struggling with? Do you know where their weaknesses are? Is your wife being crushed under the weight of handling it all by herself? Men, do your children see you more excited about your favorite sport, your favorite gun, your favorite car, your favorite hobby than you are about coming to church and about worshiping God and reading your Bible and pursuing God? Are you more comfortable talking about irrelevant statistics and events than you are about Scripture and what your kids are learning in church and how they can apply it 
to the issues that they're facing in the world? Are you passive and negligent in the important things and the difficult things of parenting? I mean, I'll ask you this question, men. Are you parenting your children against the Bible? Like, you think you know better how to raise your children than the Bible tells you to. And you're in rebellion with it. And you're in conflict with your wife. Because she's trying to tell you, this is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible says. And you're not listening to anybody because you're stubborn in your pride and you think you got it all figured out and you know better. You're passive, you're negligent in what you're doing. Oh, would you be empowered by the grace of God to build a home that would meet this qualification? A home where your children would look back on their life in your home and they would say, I thank God for you, Dad. I thank God for you, Mom, that you love me enough to lead me and love me and nurture me and discipline me. (laughs) When our kids come home and tell us things that they experience in the world and how crazy some of it is to them, I look at them and I say, you're welcome. You're welcome that I didn't let you do that, live like that. You can thank me anytime. You're welcome. And that's what it should be like. Not perfection. Not perfection. My kids will tell you I am not a perfect parent. You've seen my parenting. You know I'm not perfect. But they'll tell you I embrace the awkward. They'll tell you I confronted. That's what I'm challenging you to do, man. That's what this text challenges you to do. To embrace the awkward in your home and fill a vacuum of leadership. Application number four. Single parents, will you trust today that your heavenly Father will give you the wisdom and strength you need to invest in and influence your children? Single parents, listen to your pastor. You've got the hardest job in the world. Trust God. Trust God that he will use the influence you're trying to bring to bear on your children. And don't give up. Tell them what they need to hear. Direct them. Pray for them. Children. Children with parents who have left. Children with parents who have neglected you. Children with parents who have hurt you. Who are hurting you. Would you look to your heavenly father today and find comfort and healing? He is a God who heals. He is a God who restores broken things. And that includes broken relationships with parents. And listen, children, whatever age you are, if this is your story, would you look around this room, this moment? Would you look around the room and would you see that God has given you a family of spiritual mothers and fathers who can help you? 
is you're not alone. Would you see that? Application number five. Children, are you listening to your pastor? Look this way now. Stop collaring on the sheets and look at your pastor. I want to talk to you for just a minute. Boy, I hope you know how much your pastor and the other leaders love you guys. You're special. You're an important part of this congregation. And I hope you know that. And I want you to listen to your pastor. Are you in rebellion against your parents and their leadership? Or are you listening to them? Are you following their guidance and their example? Are you in rebellion to God and His Word? Your parents are trying to parent you as imperfectly as they are to point you to Christ and your need for Him. So that you would see in your disobedience and your struggles your need for Christ. And you would turn from your sin and trust Christ to be your Savior. Do you know what obedience is, kids? It's doing what I'm told to do when I'm told to do it with a right heart attitude. Now, kids, does this look familiar? Johnny, I want you to go do this. I don't want to do that. I want you to do it anyway. I don't want to do that. Johnny, this is the last time. If you don't go do that, you're going to be in trouble. All right. Is that obedience? No. Because you didn't do what you were told to do when you were told to do it, and you certainly didn't do it with a right heart attitude. And that's sin. And the adults in the room do the same thing. And that's why all of us need Christ. So even in your disobedience to your parents, you see your need for Jesus. And I pray that you would ask him to forgive you and save you of your sins and you'd live for him. And kiddos, listen. I'm almost done talking to you. Listen. You should thank God that your parents care enough to bring you to church, to invest in you, to teach you and love you and show you about God. That's how much they care about you. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that. Now you see, friends, this qualification about the elder in his home, both in his marriage and in his parenting, yes, it's, it's there for the leaders. It's what you should expect out of the leaders in your church. Listen to me. It's for every Christian. It's for every Christian home. It's for every marriage. It's for every parenting situation. And we have an opportunity as believers to show an unbelieving, cynical, confused world of what a real marriage looks like and what real parenting looks like. And I don't know what God may have pricked in your hearts today, men, but I'm positive that he did. His spirit is present in this room. And I encourage you to yield and surrender and confess and get help if you need to 
to do things differently. Your wife is praying that you would be a godlier man. Let's stand for prayer.